Hello, good evening, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Nathan Bartlebaugh, but tonight we have something a little different in store. Now, while we will get back to our regular programming next time, tonight's episode is all about stories, and specifically, horror stories. So, before you go any further, why don't you come on inside, pull up a chair, get close to the fire, grab a blanket or maybe a, something warm to drink, or a snack, and get ready to be terrified. Because tonight we have four chilling tales of classic horror and one haunting poem, each brought to you by a different voice from myself, Bill Van Vagel, my co-host, and three other podcasters who were gracious enough to offer their time and talents to bringing these stories to creepy life. As for those authors, they're some of the great horror fiction writers of all time, and those who set the foundation for what would come. Yes, we have Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft, but we also have E.F. Benson, A.M. Burridge, and William Hope Hodgson. And be warned, tonight's arcane stable of ghastly abominations includes specters in the night, forces from beyond our dimension, creatures from the very depths of the sea, and ominous figures lurking there in the shadows behind you. But hold tight, take care, do not fear. After all, these are only stories. Right? And before we jump into the tales themselves, we thought we'd do a little stage setting, quite literally in this case, with Edgar Allan Poe's classic 1843 poem, The Conqueror Worm. Here Poe uses his understanding of the theatrical to bring us a vision that is surreal, sometimes cosmic, and monstrous as he paints a view of life and death that borders on madness. And to help us tell this tale is Dave Dr. Shock Becker, a longtime podcaster and film reviewer who can be found over at the Horror Movie Podcast and Land of the Creeps Podcast. He serves both of those as co-hosts, and he's been doing that for many years. In addition, he also has a great website called DVD Infatuation, where he provides tons of movie reviews with tons of great information and passion. He also has his own version of DVD Infatuation as a podcast now over at ConsideringTheCinema.com. So check those out, and without further ado, here's Dave with the Conqueror Worm. Hello everyone, this is Dave, Dr. Shock Becker, and I'm going to be reading for you uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Conqueror Worm, first published in 1843. Lo, tis a gallon night within the lonesome latter years, an angel throng bewinged, bedight, in veils and drowned in tears. 
Sit in a theater to see a play of hopes and fears while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. Mimes in the forms of God on high mutter and mumble low, and hither and thither fly mere puppets they who come and go. At bidding of vast formless things that shift the scenery to and fro, flapping from out their condor wings invisible woe. That motley drama, oh be sure it shall not be forgot, with its phantom chased forevermore by a crowd that sees it not. Through a circle that ever returneth in to the selfsame spot, and much of madness and more of sin and horror the soul of the plot. But see, amid the mimic rout, a crawling shape intrude, a blood-red thing that rides from out the scenic solitude. It rides, it rides with mortal pangs, the mimes become its food, and seraphs sob at vermin fangs in human gore imbued. Out, out are the lights, out all, and over each quivering form, the curtain a funeral pall comes down with the rush of a storm. While the angels, all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy man and its hero, the Conqueror Worm. Not quite a bedtime lullaby now, is it? Dave, thank you for bringing us that. Now, Poe's poem, he creates something beyond just a metaphorical picture here. He begins to give us the slightest glimpses of what eventually becomes cosmic horror. The idea that there are forces beyond our scope that do not have our best interests at heart and no other forces can prevent them from crashing down upon us. And obviously, these ideas became near obsessions for the author H.P. Lovecraft. And tonight, we're going to see those ideas that begin as metaphors become all too real. In, from, beyond. And joining us tonight is Victor H. Rodriguez, an author and now a podcaster who has his own short story collection, A Sound of Fear, that can be picked up via Amazon and other places online. Victor also has an audio podcast version of The Sound of Fear called Into the Sound of Fear, which features narrations of his stories and discussions about them, as well as talk of other things pertaining to horror, and the genre. Links to those sites are found in the show notes. And here is Victor with From Beyond. From Beyond by H.P. Lovecraft Horrible beyond conception was the change which had taken place in my best friend. 
Crawford Tilling asked. I had not seen him since that day, two months and a half before, when he had told me toward what goal his physical and metaphysical researches were leading. When he had answered my odd and almost frightened remonstrances by driving me from his laboratory and his house in a burst of fanatical rage. I had known that he now remained mostly shut in the attic laboratory with that accursed electrical machine, eating little and excluding even the servants, but I had not thought that a brief period of ten weeks could so alter and disfigure any human creature. It is not pleasant to see a stout man grown suddenly thin, and it is even worse when the baggy skin becomes yellowed or grayed, the eyes sunken, circled, and uncannily glowing, the forehead veined and corrugated, and the hands tremulous and twitching. And if added to this there be a repellent unkemptness, a wild disorder of dress, a bushiness of dark hair, white at the roots, and an unchecked growth of pure white beard on a face once clean-shaven, the cumulative effect is quite shocking. But such was the aspect of Crawford Tillingest on the night his half-coherent message brought me to his door after my weeks of exile, such the specter that trembled as it admitted me, candle in hand, and glanced furtively over its shoulder as if fearful of unseen things in the ancient lonely house set back from Benevolent Street. That Crawford Tillingest should ever have studied science and philosophy was a mistake. These things should be left to the frigid and impersonal investigator, for they offer two equally tragic alternatives to the man of feeling and action. Despair if he fails in his quest, and terrors unutterable and unimaginable if he succeed. Tillinghast had once been the prey of failure, solitary and melancholy, but now I knew, with nauseating fears of my own, that he was the prey of success. I had indeed warned him ten weeks before when he burst forth with his tale of what he felt himself about to discover. He had been flushed and excited then, talking in a high and unnatural, though always pedantic, voice. What do we know, he had said, of the world and the universe about us? Our means of receiving impressions are absurdly few, and our notions of surrounding objects infinitely narrow. We see things only as we are constructed to see them, and can gain no idea of their absolute nature. With five feeble senses, we pretend to comprehend the boundlessly complex cosmos, yet other beings with a wider, stronger, or different range of senses might not only see very differently the things we see, but might see and study whole worlds of matter, energy, and life, which lie close at hand, yet can never be detected with the senses we have. I have always believed that such strange, inaccessible worlds exist at our very elbows, and now I believe I have found a way to break down the barriers. I am not joking. Within 24 hours, 
That machine near the table will generate waves acting on unrecognized sense organs that exist in us as atrophied or rudimentary vestiges. Those waves will open up to us many vistas unknown to man and several unknown to anything we consider organic life. We shall see that at which dogs howl in the dark and that at which cats prick up their ears after midnight. We shall see these things, and other things, which no breathing creature has yet seen. We shall overleap time, space, and dimensions, and without bodily motion peer to the bottom of creation. When Tillinghast said these things, I remonstrated, for I knew him well enough to be frightened rather than amused. But he was a fanatic, and drove me from the house. Now, he was no less a fanatic, but his desire to speak had conquered his resentment, and he had written me imperatively in a hand I could scarcely recognize. As I entered the abode of the friend so suddenly metamorphosed into a shivering gargoyle, I became infected with the terror which seemed stalking in all the shadows. The words and beliefs expressed ten weeks before seemed bodied forth in the darkness beyond the small circle of candlelight, and I sickened at the hollow, altered voice of my host. I wished the servants were about, and I did not like it when he said they had all left three days previously. It seems strange that old Gregory, at least, should desert his master without telling as tried a friend as I. It was he who had given me all the information I had of Tillinghast after I was repulsed in rage. Yet I soon subordinated all my fears to my growing curiosity and fascination. Just what Crawford Tillinghast now wished of me, I could only guess, but that he had some stupendous secret or discovery to impart, I could not doubt. Before I had protested at his unnatural pryings into the unthinkable, now that he had evidently succeeded to some degree, I almost shared his spirit, terrible though the cost of victory appeared. Up through the dark emptiness of the house, I followed the bobbing candle in hand of this shaking parody on man. The electricity seemed to be turned off, and when I asked... My guide said it was for a definite reason. It would be too much. I would not dare, he continued to mutter. I especially noted his new habit of muttering, for it was not like him to talk to himself. We entered the laboratory in the attic, and I observed that detestable electrical machine glowing with a sickly, sinister, violet luminosity. It was connected with a powerful chemical battery, but seemed to be receiving no current, for I recalled that in its experimental stage it had sputtered and purred when in action. In reply to my question, Tillinghast mumbled that this permanent glow was not electrical in any sense that I could understand. He now seated me near the machine so that it was on my right and uh, turned a switch somewhere below the crowning cluster of glass bulbs. The usual sputtering began, turned to a whine, and terminated in a drone so soft as to suggest a return to silence. 
Meanwhile, the luminosity increased, waned again, then assumed a pale, outre color or blend of colors which I could neither place nor describe. Tillingest had been watching me and noted my puzzled expression. Do you know what that is? He whispered. That is ultraviolet. He chuckled oddly at my surprise. You thought ultraviolet was invisible, and so it is. But you can see that and many other invisible things now. Listen to me. The waves from that thing are waking a thousand sleeping senses in us. Senses which we inherit from eons of evolution, from the state of detached electrons to the state of organic humanity. I have seen the truth, and I intend to show it to you. Do you wonder how it will seem? I will tell you. Here, Tillingest seated himself directly opposite me, blowing out his candle and staring hideously into my eyes. Your existing sense organs, ears first, I think, will pick up many of the impressions, for they are closely connected with the dormant organs. Then there will be others. You have heard of the pineal gland? I laugh, the shallow endocrinologist, fellow dupe and fellow parvenu of the Freudian. That gland is the great sense organ of organs. I have found out. It is like sight in the end and transmits visual pictures to the brain. If you are normal, that is the way you ought to get most of it. I mean, get most of the evidence from beyond. I looked about the immense attic room with the sloping south wall, dimly lit by rays which the everyday cannot see. The far corners were all shadows, and the whole place took on a hazy unreality which obscured its nature and invited the imagination to symbolism and phantasm. During the interval that Tillingest was silent, I fancied myself in some vast and incredible temple of long-dead gods, some vague edifice of innumerable black stone columns reaching up from a floor of damp slabs to a cloudy height beyond the range of my vision. The picture was very vivid for a while, but gradually gave way to a more horrible conception, that of utter, absolute solitude, in infinite, sightless, soundless space. There seemed to be a void and nothing more, and I felt a childish fear which prompted me to draw from my hip pocket the revolver I always carried after dark since the night I was held up in East Providence. Then, from the farthermost regions of remoteness, the sound softly glided into existence. It was infinitely faint, subtly variant, and unmistakably musical, but held a quality of surpassing wildness which made its impact feel like a delicate torture of my whole body. I felt sensations like those one feels when accidentally scratching ground glass. Simultaneously, there developed something like a cold draft, which apparently swept past me from the direction of the distant sound. As I waited breathlessly, I perceived that both sound and wind were increasing. The effect began to give me an odd notion of myself as tied to a pair of rails in the path of a gigantic, approaching locomotive. I began to speak to Tillingest, and as I did so, 
all the unusual impressions abruptly vanished. I saw only the man, the glowing machine, and the dim apartment. Tillinghast was grinning repulsively at the revolver which I had almost unconsciously drawn, but from his expression I was sure he had seen and heard as much as I, if not a great deal more. I whispered what I had experienced, and he bade me to remain as quiet and receptive as possible. Don't move, he cautioned, for in these rays we are able to be seen as well as to see. I told you the servants left, but I didn't tell you how. It was that thick-witted housekeeper. She turned on the lights downstairs after I'd warned her not to, and the wires picked up sympathetic vibrations. It must have been frightful. I could hear the screams up here, in spite of all I was seeing and hearing from another direction. And uh, later, it was rather awful to find those empty heaps of clothes around the house. And Mrs. Updike's clothes were close to the front hall switch. That's how I know she did it. It got them all. But so long as we don't move, we're fairly safe. Remember, we're dealing with a hideous world in which we are practically helpless. Keep still! The combined shock of the revelation and of the abrupt command gave me a kind of paralysis, and in my terror my mind opened to the impressions coming from what Tillinghast called beyond. I was now in a vortex of sound and motion, with confused pictures before my eyes. I saw the blurred outlines of the room, but from some point in space there seemed to be pouring a seething column of unrecognized shapes, clouds, penetrating the solid roof at a point ahead and to the right of me. Then I glimpsed the temple-like effect again, but this time the pillars reached up into an aerial ocean of light, which sent down one blinding beam along the path of the cloudy column I had seen before. After that, the scene was almost wholly kaleidoscopic, and in the jumble of sights, sounds, and unidentified sense impressions, I felt that I was about to dissolve or in some way lose the solid form. One definite flash I shall always remember. I seemed for an instant to behold a patch of strange night sky, filled with shining, revolving spheres. As it receded, I saw that the glowing suns formed a constellation or galaxy of settled shape. This shape being the distorted face of Crawford Tillinghast. At another time, I felt the huge, animate things brushing past me and occasionally walking or drifting through my supposedly solid body, and thought I saw Tillinghast look at them as though his better-trained senses could catch them visually. I recalled what he had said of the pineal gland and wondered what he saw with this preternatural eye. Suddenly, I myself became possessed of a kind of augmented sight. Over and above the luminous and shadowy chaos arose a picture which, though vague, held the elements of consistency and permanence. It was indeed somewhat familiar, for the unusual part was superimposed upon the terrestrial usual scene, much as a cinema view may be thrown upon the painted curtain of a theater. I saw the attic laboratory, the electrical machine, and the unsightly form of Tillinghast opposite me. 
but of all the space unoccupied by familiar material objects, not one particle was vacant. Indescribable shapes, both alive and otherwise, were mixed in disgusting array. And close to every known thing were whole worlds of alien, unknown entities. It likewise seemed that all the known things entered into the composition of other unknown things, and vice versa. The foremost among the living objects were great, inky, jellyish monstrosities, which flabbily quivered in the harmony with the vibrations from the machine. They were present in loathsome profusion, and I saw, to my horror, that they overlapped, that they were semi-fluid and capable of passing through one another and through what we know as solids. These things were never still, but seemed ever floating about with some malignant purpose. Sometimes they appear to devour one another, the attacker launching itself at its victim and instantaneously obliterating the latter from sight. Shudderingly, I felt that I knew what had obliterated the unfortunate servants, and could not exclude the things from my mind as I strove to observe other properties of the newly visible world that lies unseen around us. But Tillingast had been watching me, and was speaking. You see them? You see them? You see the things that float and flop about you, and through every moment of your life? You see the creatures that form what men call the pure air and the blue sky? Have I not succeeded in breaking down the barrier? Have I not shown new worlds that no other living men have seen? I heard him scream through the horrible chaos and looked at the wild face thrust so offensively close to mine. His eyes were pits of flame and they glared at me with what I now saw was overwhelming hatred. The machine droned detestably. You think those floundering things wiped out the servants? Fool! They are harmless, but the servants are gone, aren't they? You tried to stop me. You discouraged me when I needed every drop of encouragement I could get. You were afraid of the cosmic truth, you damned coward. But now I've got you. What swept up the servants? What made them scream so loud? Don't know, eh? You'll know soon enough. Look at me. Listen to what I say. Do you suppose there really are any such things as time and magnitude? Do you fancy there are such things as form or matter? I tell you. I have struck depths your little brain can't picture. I have seen beyond the bounds of infinity and drawn down demons from the stars. I have harnessed the shadows that stride from world to world to sow death and madness. Space belongs to me, do you hear? Things are hunting me now. Things that devour and dissolve, but I know how to elude them. It is you they will get as they got the servants. Stirring, dear sir? I told you it was dangerous to move. I have saved you so far by telling you to keep still, saved you to see more sights, and listen to me. If you had moved, they would have been at you long ago. Don't worry, they won't hurt you. They didn't hurt the servants. It was seeing that made the poor devils scream so. 
my pets are not pretty, for they come out of places where aesthetic standards are very different. Disintegration is quite painless, I assure you, but I want you to see them. I almost saw them, but I knew how to stop. You are not curious? I always knew you were no scientist. Trembling, eh? Trembling with anxiety to see the ultimate beings I have discovered? Why don't you move, then? Tired? Well, don't worry, my friend, for they are coming. Look! Look, Carse, you look! It's just over your left shoulder! What remains to be told is very brief, and may be familiar to you from the newspaper accounts. The police heard a shot in the old Tillinghast house, and found us there, Tillinghast dead, and uh, me unconscious. They arrested me because the revolver was in my hand, but released me in three hours, after they found it was apoplexy which had finished Tillinghast, and saw that my shot had been directed at the noxious machine, which now lay hopelessly shattered on the laboratory floor. I did not tell very much of what I had seen, for I feared the coroner would be skeptical. But from the evasive outline I did give, the doctor told me that I had undoubtedly been hypnotized by the vindictive and homicidal madman. I wish I could believe that doctor. It would help my shaky nerves if I could dismiss what I now have to think of the air and the sky about and above me. I never feel alone or comfortable, and a hideous sense of pursuit sometimes comes chillingly on me when I'm weary. What prevents me from believing the doctor is this one simple fact, that the police never found the bodies of those servants whom they say Crawford Tillinghast murdered. Thank you, Victor, for bringing us from beyond. And there, Lovecraft really brings in the paranoia and that lingering, nagging concern. What's out there that we cannot see, but can see us? And in a similar, but very different, more visceral vein, let's go to William Hope Hodgson, another author of the supernatural and and the terrifying, who had quite a storied and varied career, uh, both outside of writing and in writing, and he's responsible for a series uh, centered around the supernatural detective Karnacki. We don't have one of those stories tonight, but what we do have is another subgenre, maritime horror. And helping us delve into those depths of fear below the surface of the water is Dave Roy, a Canadian podcaster of his own podcast, The Great Fright North, that talks about films, horror films, that are not just Canadian, but from all over the world. And Dave, who also hosts a radio show in Canada that covers soundtracks, he often specializes in film scores when he discusses these movies. So check out that podcast. And now, here's Dave with A Tropical Horror.
Hello, Phantom Galaxy listeners. It's Dave Roy here from the Great Fright North podcast. I just wanted to thank Nathan and Bill for letting me be part of this show, and thank you to listeners for giving me some time. All right, I'm going to share with you a story called A Tropical Horror by William Hope Hodgson. A Tropical Horror. We are 130 days out from Melbourne, and for three weeks we have lain in this sweltering calm. It is midnight, and our watch on deck until 4 a.m. I go out and sit on the hatch. A minute later, Jockey, our youngest prentice, joins me for a chatter. Many are the hours we have sat thus and talked in the night watches, though to be sure, it is Jockey who does the talking. I am content to smoke and listen, giving an occasional grunt at seasons to show that I am attentive. Jockey has been silent for some time, his head bent in meditation. Suddenly he looks up, evidently with the intention of making some remark. As he does so, I see his face stiffen with a nameless horror. He crouches back, his eyes staring past me at some unseen fear. Then his mouth opens. He gives forth a strangulated cry and topples backward off the hatch, striking his head against the deck. Fearing I know not what, I turn to look. Great heavens! Rising above the bulwarks, seen plainly in the bright moonlight, is a vast, slobbering mouth a fathom across. From the huge, dripping lips hang great tentacles. As I look, the thing comes further over the rail. It is rising, rising higher and higher. There are no eyes visible, only that fearful, slobbering mouth set on the tremendous trunk-like neck, which, even as I watch, is curling inboard with the stealthy celerity of an enormous eel. Over it comes in vast, heaving folds. Will it never end? The ship gives a slow, sullen roll to starboard as she feels the weight. Then the tail, a broad, flat-shaped mass, slips over the teak rail and falls with a loud slump onto the deck. For a few seconds, the hideous creature lies heaped in writhing, slimy coils. Then with quick, darting movements, the monstrous head travels along the deck. Close by the mainmast stand and the harness casts. Along these, a freshly opened cask of salt beef with the top loosely replaced. The smell of the meat seems to attract the monster, and I can hear it sniffing with a vast, indrawing breath. Then those lips open, displaying four huge fangs. There is a quick forward motion of the head, a sudden crashing, crunching sound, and beef and barrel have disappeared. The noise brings one of the ordinary seamen out of the forecastle. Coming into the night, he can see nothing for a moment. Then as he gets further aft, he sees, and with horrified cries, rushes forward. Too late! From the mouth of the thing there flashes forth a long, broad blade of glistening white, set with fierce teeth. I avert my eyes, but cannot shut out the sickening glut, glut that follows. The man on lookout, attracted by the disturbance, has witnessed the tragedy and flies for refuge into the forecastle, flinging to the heavy iron door after him. The carpenter and sailmaker come running out of the half-deck in their drawers. Seeing the awful thing, they rush aft to the cabin with shouts of fear. The second mate, after one glance over the break of the poop, runs down the companionway with the helmsman after him. I can hear them bearing the scuttle, and abruptly I realize that I am on the main deck alone. So far I have forgotten my own danger. The past few minutes seem like a portion of an awful dream. Now, however, I comprehend my position, and shaking off the horror that has held me, turn to seek safety. 
As I do, my eyes fall upon Jockey, lying huddled and senseless with fright where he has fallen. I cannot leave him there. Close by stands the empty half-deck, a little steel-built house with iron doors. The lee one is hooked open. Once inside, I am safe. Up to the present, the thing has seemed to be unconscious of my presence. Now, however, the huge barrel-like head sways in my direction. Then comes a muffled bellow. And the great tongue flickers in and out as the brute turns and swirls aft to meet me. I know there is not a moment to lose, and picking up the helpless lad, I make a run for the open door. It is only distance a few yards, but that awful shape is coming down the deck to me in great breathing coils. I reach the house and tumble in with my burden, then out into the deck again to unhook and close the door. Even as I do so, something white curls round the end of the house. With a bound I am inside, and the door is shut and bolted. Though the thick glass of ports I see the thing sweep round the house, in vain search for me. Jockey has not yet moved, so, kneeling down, I loosen his shirt collar and sprinkle some water from the breaker over his face. While I am doing this, I hear Morgan shouting something. Then comes a great shriek of terror, and again that sickening glut, glut. Jockey stirs uneasily, rubs his eyes, and sits up suddenly. Was that Morgan shouting? He breaks off with a cry. Where are we? I have had such awful dreams. At this instant, there is a sound of running footsteps on the deck, and I hear Morgan's voice at the door. Tom, open! He stops abruptly and gives an awful cry of despair. Then I hear him rush forward. Through the porthole, I see him spring into the fore-rigging and scramble madly aloft. Something steals up after him. It shows white in the moonlight. It wraps itself around his right ankle. Morgan stops dead, plucks out his sheath knife and hacks fiercely at the fiendish thing. It lets go, and in a second he is over the top and running for dear life up the tagallant rigging. A time of quietness follows, and presently I see that the day is breaking. Not a sound can be heard save the heavy gasping breathing of the thing. As the sun rises higher, the creature stretches itself out along the deck and seems to enjoy the warmth. Still, no sound, either from the men forward or the officers aft. I can only suppose that they are afraid of attracting its attention. Yet a little later, I hear the report of a pistol away aft, and looking out I see the serpent raise its hung head as though listening. As it does so, I get a good view of the fore part, and in the daylight see what the night has hidden. There, right about the mouth, is a pair of little pig eyes that seem to twinkle with a diabolical intelligence. It is swaying its head slowly from side to side. Then, without warning, it turns quickly to look right through the port. I dodge out of sight, but not soon enough. It has seen me, and brings its great mouth up against the glass. I hold my breath. My God, if it breaks the glass, I cower, horrified. From the direction of the port there comes a loud, harsh, scraping sound. I shiver. Then I remember that there are little iron doors to shut over the ports in bad weather. Without a moment's waste of time, I rise to my feet and slam the door over the port. Then I go around to the others and do the same. We are now in darkness, and I tell Jockey in a whisper to light the lamp, which after some fumbling he does. About an hour before midnight I fall asleep. I am awakened suddenly some hours later by a scream of agony and the rattle of a water dipper. There is a slight scuffling sound, then that soul-revolting glut. Glut. I guess what has happened. One of the men, Forad, has slipped out of the forecastle to try and get a little water. Evidently he has trusted to the darkness to hide his movements. 
poor beggar. He has paid for his attempt with his life. After this I cannot sleep, though the rest of the night passes quietly enough. Towards morning I doze a bit, but wake every few minutes with a start. Jockey is sleeping peacefully. Indeed, he seems worn out with the terrible strain of the past 24 hours. About 8 a.m. I call him, and we make a light breakfast of the dry ship's biscuit and water. Of the later, happily we have a good supply. Jockey seems more himself and starts to talk a little, possibly somewhat louder than is safe, for as he chatters on, wondering how it will end, there comes a tremendous blow against the side of the house, making it ring again. After this, Jockey is very silent. As we sit there, I cannot but wonder what all the rest are doing, and how the poor beggars forad are faring, cooped up without water, as the tragedy of the night has proved. Towards noon, I hear a loud bang, followed by a terrific bellowing. Then comes a great smashing of woodwork and the cries of men in pain. Vainly I ask myself what has happened. I begin to reason. By the sound of the report, it was evidently something much heavier than a rifle or pistol, and judging from the mad roaring of the thing, the shot must have done some execution. On thinking it over further, I become convinced that by some means those aft have got hold of the small signal cannon we carry, and though I know that some have been hurt, perhaps killed, yet a feeling of exultation seizes me as I listen to the roars of the thing, and realize that it is badly wounded, perhaps mortally. After a while, however, the bellowing dies away, and only an occasional roar, denoting more of anger than aught else, is heard. Presently I become aware, by the ships canting over to starboard, that the creature has gone over to that side, and a great hope springs up within me that possibly it has had enough of us and is going over the rail into the sea. For a time all is silent and my hope grows stronger. I lean across and nudge Jockey, who is sleeping with his head on the table. He starts up sharply with a loud cry. Huh? Hush, I whisper. I am not certain, but I do believe it's gone. Jockey's face brightens wonderfully, and he questions me eagerly. We wait another hour or so, with hope ever rising. Our confidence is returning fast. Not a sound can we hear, not even the breathing of the beast. I get out some biscuits, and Jockey, after rummaging in the locker, produces a small piece of pork and a bottle of ship's vinegar. We fall to it with a relish. After our long abstinence from food, the meal acts on us like wine, and what must Jockey do but insist on opening the door to make sure the thing has gone? This I will not allow, telling him that at least it will be safer to open the iron port covers first and have a look out. Jockey argues, but I am immovable. He becomes excited. I believe the youngster is light-headed. Then as I turn to unscrew one of the aft covers, Jockey makes a dash at the door. Before he can undo the bolts, I have him, and after a short struggle, lead him back to the table. Even as I endeavor to quieten him, there comes at the starboard door, the door that Jockey has tried to open, a sharp, loud sniff, sniff, followed immediately by a thunderous grunting howl and a foul stench of putrid breath sweeps in under the door. A great trembling takes me, and were it not for the carpenter's tool chest, I should fall. Jockey turns very white and is violently sick, after which he is seized by a hopeless fit of sobbing. Hours after hours pass, and weary to death, I lie down on the chest upon which I have been sitting and try to rest. It must be about half-past two in the morning. 
after a somewhat longer doze, that I am suddenly awakened by a most tremendous uproar away forad. Men's voices shrieking, cursing, praying, but in spite of the terror expressed, so weak and feeble, while in the midst and at times broken off short with that hellishly suggestive glut-glut, is the unearthly bellowing of the thing. Fear incarnate seizes me, and I can only fall on my knees and pray. Too well I know what is happening. Jockey has slept through it all, and I am thankful. Presently under the door there steals a narrow ribbon of light, and I know that the day has broken on the second morning of our imprisonment. I let Jockey sleep on. I will let him have peace while he may. Time passes, but I take little notice. The thing is quiet, probably sleeping. About midday I eat a little biscuit and drink some of the water. Jockey still sleeps, it is best so. A sound breaks the stillness. The ship gives a slight heave, and I know that once more the thing is awake. Round the deck it moves, causing the ship to roll perceptibly. Once it goes forad, I fancy to again explore the forecastle. Evidently it finds nothing, for it returns almost immediately. It pauses a moment at the house, then goes on further aft. Up aloft, somewhere in the fore-rigging, there rings out a peal of wild laughter, though sounding very faint and far away. The horror stops suddenly. I listen intently, but hear nothing save a sharp creaking beyond the after end of the house, as though a strain had come upon the rigging. A minute later I hear a cry aloft, followed almost instantly by a loud crash on deck that seems to take the ship. I wait in anxious fear. What is happening? The minutes pass slowly. Then comes another frightened shout. It ceases suddenly. The suspense has become terrible and I am no longer able to bear it. Very cautiously I open one of the after port covers and peep out to see a fearful sight. There, with its tail upon the deck and its vast body curled round the mainmast is the monster, its head above the top sail yard and its great clawed armed tentacle weaving in the air. It is the first proper sight that I have had of the thing. Good heavens! It must weigh a hundred tons. Knowing that I shall have time, I opened the port itself, then crane my head out and look up. There, on the extreme end of the lower topsail yard, I see one of the able seamen. Even down here I note the staring horror of his face. At this moment he sees me and gives a weak, hoarse cry for help. I can do nothing for him. As I look, the great tongue shoots out and licks him off the yard, much as might a dog a fly off of a window pane. Higher still, but happily out of reach are two more of the men. As far as I can judge, they are lashed to the mast above the royal yard. The thing attempts to reach them, but after a futile effort it ceases and starts to slide down, coil on coil to the deck. While doing this, I notice a great gaping wound on its body some twenty feet above the tail. I drop my gaze from aloft and look aft. The cabin door is torn from its hinges, and the bulkhead, which, unlike the half-deck, is of teak wood, is partly broken down. With a shudder, I realize the cause of those cries after the cannon shot. Turning, I screw my head round and try to see the foremast, but cannot. The sun, I notice, is low, and the night is near. Then I draw my head and fasten up both port and cover. How will it end? Oh, how will it end? After a while, Jockey wakes up. He is very restless, yet though he has eaten nothing during the day, I cannot get him to touch anything. Night draws on. 
We are too weary, too dispirited to talk. I lie down, but not to sleep. Time passes. A ventilator rattles violently somewhere on the main deck, and there sounds constantly that slurring, gritty noise. Later I hear a cat's agonized howl, and then again all is quiet. Sometime after comes a great splash alongside. Then for some hours all is silent as the grave. Occasionally I sit up on the chest and listen, yet never a whisper of noise comes to me. There is an absolute silence. Even the monotonous creak of the gear has died away entirely. And at last a real hope is springing up within me. That splash, this silence. Surely I am justified in hoping. I do not wake Jockey this time. I will prove first for myself that all is safe. Still I wait. I will run no unnecessary risks. After a time I creep to the after port and will listen, but there is no sound. I put up my hand and feel at the screw. Then again I hesitate, yet not for long. Noiselessly I begin to unscrew the fastening of the heavy shield. It swings loose on its hinge, and I pull it back and peer out. My heart is beating madly. Everything seems strangely dark outside. Perhaps the moon has gone behind a cloud. Suddenly a beam of moonlight enters the port and goes as quickly. I stare out. Something moves. Again the light streams in, and now I seem to be looking into a great cavern, at the bottom of which quivers and curls something palely white. My heart seems to stand still. It is the horror. I start back and seize the iron port flap to slam it. As I do, something strikes the glass like a steam ram, shatters it to atoms, and flicks past me into the berth. I scream and spring away. The port is quite filled with it. The lamp shows it dimly. It is curling and twisting here and there. It is as thick as a tree and covered with a smooth, slimy skin. At the end is a great claw, like a lobster's, only a thousand times larger. I cower down into the farthest corner. It has broken the tool chest to pieces with one click of those frightful mandibles. Jockey has crawled under a bunk. The thing sweeps round in my direction. I feel a drop of sweat trickle slowly down my face. It tastes salty. Nearer comes that awful death. Crash! I roll over backwards. It has crushed the water breaker against which I leant, and I am rolling in the water across the floor. The claw drives up, then down, with a quick, uncertain movement, striking the deck a dull, heavy blow, a foot from my head. Jockey gives a little gasp of horror. Slowly, the thing rises and starts feeling its way around the berth. It plunges into a bunk and pulls out a bolster, nips it in half and drops it, then moves on. It is feeling along the deck. As it does so, it comes across half of the bolster. It seems to toy with it, then picks it up and takes it out through the port. A wave of putrid air fills the berth. There is a grating sound, and something enters the port again. Something white and tapering and set with teeth. Hither and thither it curls, rasping over the bunks, ceiling and deck with a noise like that of a great saw at work. Twice it flickers above my head, and I close my eyes. Then it goes off again. It sounds now on the opposite side of the berth and nearer to Jockey. Suddenly the harsh, raspy noise becomes muffled and as though the teeth were passing across some soft substance. Jockey gives a horrified little scream that breaks off into a bubbling, whistling sound. I open my eyes. The tip of the vast tongue is curled tightly round something that drips, and is quickly withdrawn, allowing the moonbeams to steal again into the berth. I rise to my feet, looking round. 
I note in a mechanical sort of way the wrecked state of the berth, the shattered chests, the dismantled bunks, and something else. Jockey, I cry and tingle all over. There is that awful thing again at the port. I glance round for a weapon. I will revenge, Jockey. Ah, there, right under the lamp, where the wreck of the carpenter's chest strewn the floor, lies a small hatchet. I spring forward and seize it. It is small, but so keen. So keen. I feel its razor edge lovingly. Then I am back at the port. I stand to one side and raise my weapon. The great tongue is feeling its way to those fearsome remains. It reaches them. As it does so, with a scream of, Jockey! Jockey! I strike savagely again and again and again. Gasping as I strike, once more in the monstrous mass, falls to the deck, writhing like a hideous eel. A vast, warm flood rushes in through the porthole. There is a sound of breaking steel and an enormous bellowing. Singing comes in my ears and grows louder, louder. The birth grows indistinct and suddenly dark. Extract from the log of the steamship Hispaniola. June 24. Latitude north, longitude west, 11 a.m. Sighted four-masted bark about four points on the port bow. Flying signal of distress. Ran down to her and sent a boat aboard. She proved to be the Glen Dune, homeward bound from Melbourne to London. Found things in a terrible state. Decks covered with blood and slime. Steel deckhouse stove in. Broke open door and discovered youth of about 19 in last stage of ination. Also part remains of a boy about 14 years of age. There was a great quantity of blood in the place and a huge curled up mass of white flesh, weighing about half a ton, one end of which appeared to have been hacked through with a sharp instrument. Found forecastle door open and hanging from one hinge. Doorway bulged as though something had been forced through. Went inside. Terrible state of affairs. Blood everywhere. Broken chests. Smashed bunks. But no men nor remains. Went aft again and found youth showing signs of recovery. When he came round, gave the name of Thompson. Said they had been attacked by a huge serpent. Though it must have been a sea serpent. He was too weak to say much, but told us there were some men up the mainmast. Sent a hand aloft who reported them lashed to the royal mast, and quite dead. Went aft to the cabin. Here we found the bulkhead smashed to pieces and the cabin door lying on the deck near the after hatch. Found body of captain down lazarette, but no officers. Noticed amongst the wreckage part of the carriage of a small cannon came aboard again have sent the second mate with six men to work her into port. Thompson is with us. He has written out his version of the affair. We certainly consider that the state of the ship as we found her bears out in every respect his story. Signed, William Norton, Master, Tom Briggs, First Mate. Thank you, Dave. That was quite a tale, and quite some teeth, and quite some tentacles, and quite a monster. If you enjoyed 
That Story by Hodgson. Check out some of his other work. and We'll have a link in the show notes. He has many other creepy and uncanny tales of the ocean. And beyond that, he has many wonderful short stories that go all across different elements of the genre and different elements of all genres, really. One of his finest stories is a novella called The House on the Borderlands. It has affected so many different genres, not just horror. Well, now let's move from one kind of creepy crawly to another. And I'm going to bring in my co-host, Bill Van Vagel, now. And Bill, of course, in addition to being the Fan of Galaxy co-host, is also co-host over at Land of the Creeps. Without further ado, here's Bill reading tonight's only true ghost story, E.F. Benson's Caterpillars. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bill Van Vigel, your co-host. When Nathan asked if I would read a story, I said, of course I would. And I was looking high and low for a really good one, and I think I came upon one. Caterpillars by Edward Frederick Benson. I saw a month ago or two in an Italian paper that the Villa Cascana, in which I once stayed, had been pulled down and that a manufactory of some sort was in process of erection on its site. There is therefore no longer any reason for refraining from writing of those things which I myself saw, or imagined I saw, in a certain room on a certain landing of the villa in question, nor from mentioning the circumstances which followed, which may or may not, according to the opinion of the reader, throw some light on or be somehow connected with this experience. The Villa Cascana was in all ways but one a perfectly delightful house. Yet, if it were standing now, nothing in the world, I use the phrase in its literal sense, would induce me to set foot in it again, for I believe it to have been haunted in a very terrible and practical manner. Most ghosts, when all is said and done, do not do much harm. They may perhaps terrify, but the person whom they visit usually gets over their visitation. They may, on the other hand, be entirely friendly and beneficent. But the appearances in Villa Cascana were not beneficent, and had they made their visit in a very slightly different manner, I do not suppose I should have got over it any more than Arthur Inglis did. The house stood in an ilex-clad hill not far from Sestri de Levant on the Italian Riviera, looking over the iridescent blues of that enchanted sea, while behind its rose the pale green chestnut woods that climb up the hillsides till they give place to the pines that, black in contrast with them, crown the slopes. All around, the garden in the luxuriance of mid-spring bloomed and was fragrant, and the scent of magnolia and rose, borne on the salt freshness of the winds from the sea, flowed like a stream through the cool vaulted rooms. On the ground floor, a broad-pillared loggia ran round three sides of the house, the top of which formed a balcony for certain rooms of the first floor. The main staircase, broad and of grey marble steps, led up from the hall to the landing outside these rooms, which were three in number, namely two big sitting rooms and a bedroom arranged en suite. The latter was unoccupied, the sitting rooms were in use. 
From these, the main staircase was continued to the second floor where they were situated certain bedrooms, one of which I occupied, while from the other side of the first floor landing, some half dozen steps led to another suite of rooms, where, at the time I am speaking of, Arthur Inglis, the artist, had his bedroom and studio. Thus, the landing outside my bedroom at the top of the house commanded both the landing of the first floor and also the steps that led to Inglis's room. Jim Stanley and his wife finally, whose guest I was, occupied rooms in another wing of the house. I arrived just in time for lunch on a brilliant noon of mid-May. The garden was shouting with color and fragrance and not less delightful after my broiling walk up from the marina. Should have been the coming from the reverberating heat and blaze of the day into the marble coolness of the villa. Only, the reader has my bare word for this and nothing more. The moment I set foot in the house, I felt something was wrong. This feeling, I may say, was quite vague, though very strong, and I remember that when I saw letters waiting for me on the table in the hall, I felt certain that the explanation was here. I was convinced that there was bad news of some sort for me. Yet when I opened them, I found no such explanation of my premonition. My correspondence all reeked of prosperity. Yet this clear miscarriage of a presentiment did not dissipate my uneasiness. In that cool, fragrant house, there was something wrong. I am at pains to mention this, because to the general view it may explain that, though I am as a rule so excellent a sleeper, that the extinction of my light on getting into bed is apparently contemporaneous with being called on the following morning, I slept very badly on my first night in the Villa Cascana. It may also explain the fact that when I did sleep, if it was indeed in sleep that I saw what I thought I saw, I dreamed in a very vivid and original manner. Original, that is to say, in the sense that something that, as far as I knew, had never previously entered into my consciousness, usurped it then. But since, in addition to this evil premonition, certain words and events occurring during the rest of the night might have suggested something of what I thought happened that night, it will be well to relate them. After lunch then, I went round to the house with Mrs. Stanley, and during our tour, she referred, it is true, to the unoccupied bedroom on the first floor. We left that unoccupied, she said, because Jim and I have a charming bedroom and dressing room, and as you saw in the wing, and if we used it ourselves, we should have to turn the dining room into a dressing room and have our meals downstairs. As it is, however, we have our little flat there. Arthur English has his little flat in the other passage. And I remembered, aren't I extraordinary, that you once said the higher up you were in a house, the better you were pleased. So I put you at the top of the house instead of giving you that room. It is true that a doubt, vague as my uneasiness premonition, crossed my mind at this. I did not see why Mrs. Stanley should have explained all this, if there had not been more to explain. I allow, therefore, that the thought that there was something to explain about the unoccupied bedroom was momentarily present to my mind. The second thing that may have borne on this was my dream. At dinner, the conversation turned for a moment on ghosts. Inglis, with the certainty of conviction, expressed his belief that anybody, 
who could possibly believe in the existence of supernatural phenomena was unworthy of the name of an ass. The subject instantly dropped. As far as I can recollect, nothing else occurred or was said that could bear on what follows. We all went to bed rather early, and personally I yawned my way upstairs, feeling hideously sleepy. My room was rather hot, and they threw all the windows wide, and from what and from without poured in the white light of the moon and the love song of the many nightingales. I undressed quickly and got into bed, but though I had felt so sleepy before, I now felt extremely wide awake. But I was quite content to be awake. I did not toss or turn. I felt perfectly happy listening to the song and seeing the light. Then, it is possible, I may have gone to sleep, and what follows may have been a dream. I thought anyhow that after a time the nightingales ceased singing and the moon sank. I thought also that if for some unexplained reason I was going to lie awake all night, I might as well read, and I remembered that I had left a book in which I was interested in the dining room on the first floor. So I got out of bed, lit a candle, and went downstairs. I went into the room, saw on a side table the book I had come to look for and then simultaneously saw that the door into the unoccupied bedroom was open. A curious grey light, not of dawn nor of moonshine, came out of it, and I looked in. The bed stood just opposite the floor, a big four-poster, hung with the tapestry at the head. Then I saw that the greyish light of the bedroom came from the bed, or rather, from what was on the bed, for it was covered with great caterpillars, a foot or more in length, which crawled over it. They were faintly luminous, and it was the light from them that showed me the room. Instead of the sucker feet of ordinary caterpillars, they had rows of pincers like crabs, and they moved by grasp off. In color, these dreadful insects were yellowish-gray, and they were covered with irregular lumps and swellings. There must have been hundreds of them, for they formed a sort of writhing, crawling pyramid on the bed. Occasionally one fell onto the floor with a soft fleshy thud, and though the floor was hard concrete, it yielded to the pincer feet as if they had been putty. And crawling back, the caterpillar would mount onto the bed again to rejoin its fearful companions. They appeared to have no faces, so to speak, but at one end of them there was a mouth that opened sideways in respiration. Then, as I looked, it seemed to me as if they all suddenly became conscious of my presence. All the mouths, at any rate, were turned in my direction, and the next moment they began dropping off the bed with those soft, fleshy thuds onto the floor, and wriggling towards me. For one second a paralysis as of a dream was on me, but the next I was running upstairs again to my room, and I remember feeling the cold of the marble steps on my bare feet. I rushed into my bedroom and slammed the door behind me and then, I was certainly wide awake now, I found myself standing by my bed with the sweat of terror pouring from me. The noise of the banged door still rang in my ears, but as would have been more unusual if this had been a mere nightmare, the terror that had been mine when I saw these foul beasts crawling about the bed or dropping softly on the floor did not seize them. And until dawn I sat or stood not daring to lie down, thinking that every rustle or movement that I heard was the approach of the caterpillars. To them, and the claws that bit into the cement of the floor was a child's play. Steel would not keep them out. But with the sweet and noble return of the day, the horror vanished, 
The whisper of wind became benign again. The nameless fear, whatever it was, was smoothed out and terrified me no longer. Dawn broke, hueless at first, then it grew dove-colored, then the flaming pageant of light spread over the sky. The admirable rule of the house was that everybody had breakfast where and when he pleased, and in consequence it was not till lunchtime that I met any of the other members of our party, since I had breakfast on my balcony and wrote letters and other things till lunch. In fact, I got down to that meal rather late, after the other three had begun. Between my knife and fork there was a small pillbox of cardboard, and as I sat down, Inglis spoke. Do look at that, he said since you are interested in natural history. I found it crawling in my counterpane last night, and I don't know what it is. I think that before I opened the pillbox, I expected something of the sort which I found in it. Inside it, anyhow, was a small caterpillar, grayish-yellow in color, with curious bumps and excretions on its rings. It was extremely active and hurried round the box, this way and that. Its feet were unlike the feet of any caterpillar I had ever saw, they were like the pincers of a crab. I looked and shut the lid down again. No, I do not know what I said, but it looks rather unwholesome. What are you going to do with it? Oh, I shall keep it, said Inglis. It has begun to spin. I want to see what sort of moth it turns into. I opened the box again and saw that these hurrying movements were indeed the beginning of the spinning of the web of its cocoon. Then Inglis spoke again. It has got a funny feet too, he said. They are like crab's pincers. What's the Latin for crab? Oh yes, cancer. So in case it is unique, let's Christian it cancer iglenesis. Then something happened in my brain, some momentary piecing together of all that I had seen or dreamed. Something in his words seemed to me to throw light on it all, and my own intense horror at the experience of the night before linked itself onto what he had just said. In effect, I took the box and threw it, caterpillar and all, out of the window. There was a gravel path just outside and beyond it, a fountain playing into a basin. The box fell into the middle of this. Inglis laughed. So the students of the occult don't like solid facts, he said. My poor caterpillar. The talk went off again and at once onto other subjects. And I've only given in detail, as they happened these trivialities in order to be sure myself that I've recorded everything that could have borne on occult subjects or on the subject of caterpillars. But at the moment, when I threw the pillbox into the fountain, I lost my head. My only excuse is that, as is probably plain, the tenant of it was, in miniature, exactly what I had seen crowded onto the bed in the unoccupied room. And though the translation of these phantoms into flesh and blood, or whatever it is that the caterpillars are made of, ought to perhaps to have relieved the horror of the night, as a matter of fact, it did nothing of the kind. After lunch, we spent an hour or two strolling about the garden, or sitting in the loggia, and it must have been about four o'clock, when Stanley and I had started off to bathe, down the path that led to the fountain into which I had thrown the pillbox. The water was shallow and clear, and at the bottom of it I saw its white remains. The water had disintegrated the cardboard, and it had become no more than a few strips of shreds of sodden paper. The center of the fountain was in a marble Italian cupid, which squirted the water out of the wineskin held under its arms, and crawling up its legs was the caterpillar. 
Strange and scarcely credible as it seemed, it must have survived its falling to bits out of its prison and made its way to shore. And there it was, out of arm's reach, weaving and waving this way as that it had evolved into its cocoon. Then, as I looked at it, it seemed to me again that, like the caterpillar I had seen last night, it saw me. And breaking out of its threads that surrounded it, it crawled down the marble leg of the cupid and began swimming like a snake across the water of the fountain towards me. It came with extraordinary speed. The fact of a caterpillar being able to swim was new to me, and in another moment was crawling up the marble lip of the basin. Just then Inglis joined us. Why, if it isn't old Cancer Inglesius again, he said, catching the sight of the beast, what a tearing hurry it is in. We were standing by the side on the path, and when the caterpillar had advanced to within about a yard of us, stopped and began waving again as if in doubt to the direction in which it should go. Then it appeared to make up its mind and crawled to Inglis's shoe. It likes me best, he said, and as it wasn't drowned, I think perhaps he shook it off his shoe onto the gravel path and trod on it. All afternoon, the air got heavier and heavier, with the Sirocco that was without doubt coming up from the south, and that night again I went up to bed feeling very sleepy. But below my drowsiness, so to speak, there was the consciousness, stronger than before, that there was something wrong in the house, that something dangerous was close at hand. But I fell asleep at once, and how long after I do not know, either woke or dreamed, I was dreaming or awake, I lay and fought this fear, telling myself that I was but the prey of my own nerves disordered by Sirocco or whatnot, and at the same time quite clearly knowing in another part of my mind, so to speak, that every moment's delays added to the danger. At last the second feeling became irresistible, and I put on a coat and trousers and went out of my room, and then I saw that I had already delayed too long, and that I was now too late. The whole of the landing of the first floor below was invisible under the swarm of caterpillars that crawled there. The folding doors into the sitting room from which opened the bedroom where I had seen them last night were shut, but they were squeezing through the cracks of it and dropping one by one through the keyhole, elongating themselves into mere strings as they passed, and growing fat and lumpy again on emerging. Some, as if exploring, were nosing about the steps into the passage, at the end of which were Inglis's rooms. Others were crawling on the lowest steps of the staircase that led up to where I stood. The landing, however, was completely covered with them. I was cut off. Then at last, a general movement began to take place, and they grew thicker on the steps that led to Inglis's room. Gradually, like some hideous tide of flesh, they advanced along the passage, and I saw the foremost visible by the pale gray luminous that came from them, reached his door. Again and again I tried to shout and warn him, and tear all the time that they would turn at the sound of my voice and mount my stair instead, but for all my efforts I felt that no sound came from my throat. They crawled along the hinge crack of his door, passing through as if they had done before, and still I stood there, making impotent efforts to shout it to him to bid him escape while, they were, while there was time. At last the passage was completely empty. They had all gone, and at that moment I was conscious for the first time of the cold of the marble landing on which I stood barefoot. 
The dawn was just beginning to break in the eastern sky. Six months after I met Mrs. Stanley in a country house in England, we talked on many subjects, and at last she said, I don't think I've seen you since I got that dreadful news about Arthur Inglis a month ago. I haven't heard, said I. No, he got cancer. They don't even advise any operation, for there is no hope of a cure. He is riddled with it, the doctors say. Now, during all these six months, I do not think a day has passed on which I had not in my mind the dreams, or whatever you like to call them, which I had seen in Villa Cascana. It is awful, is it not, she continued, and I feel I can't help feeling that he may have caught it at the villa, I asked. She looked at me in blank surprise. Why did you say that, she asked. How did you know? Then she told me. In the unoccupied house bedroom a year before, there had been a fatal case of cancer. She had, of course, taken the best advice and had been told that the utmost dictates of prudence, which would be obeyed so as long as she did not put anybody to sleep in the room, which had also been thoroughly disinfected and newly whitewashed and painted. But, and so it ends. Edward Frederick Brown, 1867 to 1940. And there you have Caterpillars. Bill, thank you so much. This story is one that has always left an impression on me, mostly for the way it imagines its paranormal activity and the way it links it to a more earthbound malady. E.F. Benson took this sort of approach many times in his ghost stories, or he wasn't delivering tried-and-true ghost tactics you would expect. You'll be able to find more Benson's work in the show notes. And now, we come to, finally, our last tale for the evening. Here we have a menace of a very different sort. Is there something sinister, or is it all in your mind? I'll be reading for you A.M. Burridge's The Waxwork. The Waxwork by A.M. Burridge While the uniformed attendants of Mariner's Waxworks were ushering the last stragglers through the great glass-paneled double doors, the manager sat in his office interviewing Raymond Hewson. The manager was a youngish man, stout, blonde, and of medium height. He wore his clothes well and contrived to look extremely smart without appearing overdressed. Raymond Hewson looked neither. His clothes, which had been good when new and which were still carefully brushed and pressed, were beginning to show signs of their owners losing battle with the world. He was a small, spare, pale man with lank, errant brown hair, and although he spoke plausibly and even forcibly, he had the defensive and somewhat furtive nature of a man who was used to rebuffs. He looked what he was, a man gifted somewhat above the ordinary, who was a failure through his lack of self-assertion. The manager was speaking. 
There's nothing new in your request, he said. In fact, we refuse it to different people, mostly young bloods who try to make bets, about three times a week. We have nothing to gain and something to lose by letting people spend the night in our murderer's den. If I allowed it and some young idiot lost his senses, what would be my position? But your being a journalist somewhat alters the case. Houston smiled. I suppose you mean that journalists have no senses to lose? No, no, laughed the manager. But one imagines them to be responsible people. Besides, here we have something to gain. Publicity and advertisement. Exactly, said Houston. And there I thought we might come to terms. The manager laughed again. Oh, he exclaimed, I know what's coming. You want to be paid twice, do you? It used to be said years ago that Madame Tussauds would give a man a hundred pounds for sleeping alone in the Chamber of Horrors. I hope you don't think that we've made any such offer. Er, uh, what is your paper, Mr. Hewson? I am freelancing at present, working on space for several papers. However, I should find no difficulty in getting the story printed. The Morning Echo would use it like a shot. A night with Mariner's murderers. No live paper could turn it down. The manager rubbed his chin. Ah, and how do you propose to treat it? I shall make it gruesome, of course. Gruesome with just a saving touch of humor. The other nodded and offered Hewson his cigarette case. Very well, Mr. Hewson. Get your story printed in the morning echo, and there will be a five-pound note waiting for you here when you care to come and call for it. But first of all, it's no small ordeal that you're proposing to undertake. I'd like to be quite sure about you, and I'd like you to be quite sure about yourself. I own I shouldn't care to take it on. I've seen those figures dressed and undressed. I know all about the process of their manufacture. I can walk about company downstairs as unmoved as if I were walking among so many skittles. But I should hate having to sleep down there alone among them. Why? asked Hewson. I don't know. There isn't any reason. I don't believe in ghosts. If I did, I should expect them to haunt the scene of their crimes or the spot where their bodies were laid instead of a cellar which happens to contain their wax effigies. It's just that I couldn't sit alone among them all night, with their seeming to stare at me in the way they do. After all, they represent the lowest and most appalling types of humanity. And although I would not own it publicly, the people who come to see them are not generally charged with the very highest motives. The whole atmosphere of the place is unpleasant. And if you are susceptible to atmosphere, I warn you that you are in for a very uncomfortable night. Hewson had known that from the moment when the idea had first occurred to him. His soul sickened at the prospect. But he had a wife and family to keep, and for the past month he had been living on paragraphs, eked out by his rapidly dwindling store of savings. Here was a chance not to be missed. The price of a special story in the morning echo, with a five-pound note to add to it, it meant comparative wealth and luxury for a week, and freedom from the worst anxieties for a fortnight. Besides, if he wrote the story well, it might lead to an offer of regular employment. The way of transgressors and newspaper men is hard, he said. But I don't think your waxworks will worry me much. You're not superstitious. Not a bit, Hewson laughed. But you're a journalist. You must have a strong imagination. The news editors for whom I've worked have always complained that I haven't any. Plain facts are not considered sufficient in our trade, and the papers don't like offering their readers unbuttered bread. The manager smiled and rose. Right, he said. I think the last of the people have gone. 
Wait a moment. I'll give orders for the figures downstairs not to be draped, and let the night people know that you'll be here. Then I'll take you down and show you round. He picked up the receiver of a house telephone, spoke into it, and presently replaced it. One condition I'm afraid I must impose on you, he remarked. I must ask you not to smoke. We had a fire scare down in the murderer's den this evening. I don't know who gave the alarm, but whoever it was, it was a false one. Fortunately, there were very few people down there at the time, or there might have been a panic. And now, if you're ready, we'll make a move. Hewson followed the manager through half a dozen rooms where attendants were busy shrouding the kings and queens of England, the generals and prominent statesmen of this and other generations, all the mixed herd of humanity whose fame or notoriety had rendered them eligible for this kind of immortality. The manager stopped once and spoke to a man in uniform saying something about an armchair in the murderer's den. It's the best we can do for you, I'm afraid, he said to Hewson. I hope you'll be able to get some sleep. He led the way through an open barrier and down an ill-lit stone stairs, which conveyed a sinister impression of giving access to a dungeon. In a passage at the bottom were a few preliminary horrors, such as relics of the Inquisition, a rack taken from a medieval castle, branding irons, thumbscrews, and other memories of man's one-time cruelty to man. Beyond the passage was the murderer's den. It was a room of irregular shape, with a vaulted roof, and dimly lit by electric lights burning behind inverted bowls of frosted glass. It was by design an eerie and uncomfortable chamber, a chamber whose atmosphere invited its visitors to speak in whispers. There was something in the air of a chapel about it, but a chapel no longer devoted to the practice of piety and given over now for base and impious worship. The waxwork murderers stood on low pedestals with numbered tickets at their feet. Seeing them elsewhere, and without knowing whom they represented, one would have thought them a dull-looking crew, chiefly remarkable for the shabbiness of their clothes. Recent notorieties rubbed dusty shoulders with the old favorites. Thurtell, the murderer of Ware, stood as if frozen in the act of making a shop-window jester to young Bywaters. There was Lefroy, the poor, half-baked little snob who killed for gain so that he might ape the gentleman. Charles Peace, the only member of that vile company who looked uncompromisingly and entirely evil, sneered across a gangway at Norman Thorne. The manager, walking around with Hewson, pointed out several of the more interesting of these unholy notabilities. That's Crippen. I expect you recognize him. Insignificant little beast who looks as if he couldn't tread on a worm. That's Armstrong. Looks like a decent country gentleman, doesn't he? There's old Vic Ware. You can't miss him because of his beard. And of course, this... Who's that? Hewson interrupted in a whisper, pointing. Oh, I was coming to him, said the manager in a light undertone. Come and have a good look at him. This is our star turn. He's the only one of the bunch that hasn't been hanged. The figure which Hewson had indicated was that of a small, slight man not much more than five feet in height. It wore little waxed mustaches, large spectacles, and a caped coat. There was something so exaggeratedly French in its appearance that it reminded Hewson of a stage caricature. He could not have said precisely why the mild-looking face seemed to him so repellent, but he had already recoiled a step, and even in the manager's company, it cost him an effort to look again. But who is he? he asked. That, said the manager, is Dr. Bourdais. Hewson shook his head doubtfully. I think I've heard the name. But I forget in connection with what? The manager smiled. 
You'd remember him better if you were a Frenchman, he said. For some long while, that man was a terror of Paris. He carried on his work of healing by day and of throat-cutting by night when the fit was on him. He killed for the sheer, devilish pleasure it gave him to kill, and always in the same way, with a razor. After his last crime, he left a clue behind him which set the police upon his track. One clue led to another, and before very long, they knew that they were on the track of the Parisian equivalent of our Jack the Ripper, and had enough evidence to send him to the madhouse or the guillotine on a dozen capital charges. But even then, our friend here was too clever for them. When he realized that the toils were closing in about him, he mysteriously disappeared, and ever since, the police of every civilized country have been looking for him. There's no doubt that he managed to make away with himself, and by some means which has prevented his body coming to light. One or two crimes of a similar nature have taken place since his disappearance, but he's believed, almost for certain, to be dead. It's queer, isn't it, how every notorious murderer has imitators. Hewson shuddered and fidgeted with his feet. I don't like him at all, he confessed. Ugh, what eyes he's got. Yes, this figure's a little masterpiece. You find the eyes bite into you? Well, that's excellent realism, then. For Bourdais practiced mesmerism, and was supposed to mesmerize his victims before dispatching them. Indeed, had he not done so, it's impossible to see how so small a man could have done his ghastly work. There were never any signs of a struggle. I thought I saw him move, said Hewson with a catch in his voice. The manager smiled. You have more than one optical illusion before the night's out, I expect. You shan't be locked in. You can come upstairs when you've had enough of it. There are watchmen on the premises, so you'll find company. Don't be alarmed if you hear them moving about. I'm sorry I can't give you any more light, because all the lights are on. For obvious reasons, we keep this place as gloomy as possible. The member of the night staff who placed the armchair for Hewson was inclined to be facetious. Where will you have it, sir? He asked, grinning. Just here, so you can have a little talk with Crippen when you're tired of sitting still? Say where, sir. Hewson smiled. The man's chaff pleased him, if only because for the moment at least, it lent the proceedings a much-desired air of the commonplace. I'll place it myself, thanks, he said. I'll find out where the drafts come from first. You won't find any down here. Well, good night, sir. I'm upstairs if you want me. Don't let them sneak up behind you and touch your neck with their cold and clammy hands. Hewson laughed and wished the man good night. It was easier than he'd expected. He wheeled the armchair, a heavy one upholstered in plush, a little way down the central gangway and deliberately turned it so that its back was towards the effigy of Dr. Bourdais. For some reason, he liked Dr. Bourdais a great deal less than his companions. Busying himself with arranging the chair, he was almost light-hearted, but when the attendant's footfalls had died away and a deep hush stole over the chamber, he realized that he had no slight ordeal before him. The dim, unwavering light fell on the rows of figures which were so uncannily like human beings that the silence and the stillness seemed unnatural and even ghastly. He missed the sound of breathing, the rustling of clothes, the hundred and one minute noises one hears when even the deepest silence has fallen upon a crowd but the air was as stagnant as water at the bottom of a standing pond. There was not a breath in the chamber to stir a curtain or rustle a hanging drapery or start a shadow, his own shadow moving in response to a shifted armor leg 
was all that could be coaxed into motion. All was still to the gaze and silent to the ear. It must be like this at the bottom of the sea, he thought, and wondered how to work that phrase into his story on the morrow. He faced the sinister figures boldly enough. They were only waxworks. So long as he let that thought dominate all others, he promised himself that all would be well. It did not, however, save him long from the discomfort occasioned by the waxen stare of Dr. Bourdais, which he knew was directed upon him from behind. The eyes of the little Frenchman's effigy haunted and tormented him, and he itched with the desire to turn and look. Come, he thought, my nerves have started already. If I turn and look at that dressed-up dummy, it will be an emission of funk. And then another voice in his brain spoke to him. It's because you're afraid that you won't turn and look at him. Hewson slewed his chair round a little and looked behind him. Among the many figures standing in stiff, unnatural poses, the effigy of the dreadful little doctor stood out with a queer prominence, perhaps because a steady beam of light bears straight down upon it. Hewson flinched before the parody of mildness which some fiendishly skilled craftsman had managed to convey in wax, met the eyes for one agonized second, and turned again to face the other direction. He's only a waxwork like the rest of you, Hewson muttered defiantly. You're all only waxworks. They were only waxworks, yes. But waxworks don't move. Not that he had seen the least movement anywhere, but it struck him that in the moment or two while he had looked behind him, there had been the least subtle change in the grouping of the figures in front. Crippen, for instance, seemed to have turned at least one degree to the left. Or, thought Hewson, perhaps the illusion was due to the fact that he had not slewed his chair back into its exact original position. Hewson held his breath for a moment and then drew his courage back to him as a man lifts a weight. He remembered the words of more than one news editor, and laughed savagely to himself. And they tell me I've got no imagination, he said beneath his breath. He took a notebook from his pocket and wrote quickly, Mem, deadly silence and unearthly stillness of figures, like being bottom of sea, hypnotic eyes of Dr. Bourdais. Figures seem to move when not being watched. He closed the book suddenly over his fingers and looked round quickly and awfully over his right shoulder. He had neither seen nor heard a movement, but it was as if some sixth sense had made him aware of one. He looked straight into the vapid countenance of Lefroy, which smiled back as if to say, it wasn't I. Of course it wasn't he, or any of them. It was his own nerves. Or was it? Hadn't Crippen moved again during that moment when his attention was directed elsewhere? You couldn't trust that little man. Once you took your eyes off of him, he took advantage of it to shift his position. That was what they were all doing, if he only knew it, he told himself, and half rose out of his chair. This was not quite good enough. He was going. He wasn't going to spend the night with a lot of waxworks which moved while he wasn't looking. Hewson sat down again. This was very cowardly and very absurd. They were only waxworks, and they couldn't move. Let him hold that thought, and all would yet be well. Then why all that silent unrest about him? A subtle something in the air which did not quite break the silence, and happened, whichever way he looked, just beyond the boundaries of his vision. He swung round quickly to encounter the mild but baleful stare of Dr. Bourdais. Then, 
Without warning, he jerked his head back to stare straight at Crippen. <sighs> He'd nearly caught Crippen that time. You better be careful, Crippen. <laughs> and hold the rest of you. If I do see one of you move, I'll smash you to pieces. Do you hear? He ought to go, he told himself. Already, he'd experienced enough to write his story, or ten stories for that matter. Well, then why not go? The morning echo would be none the wiser as to how long he had stayed, nor would it care so long as the story was a good one. Yes, but that night watchman upstairs would chaff him. And the manager, one never knew, perhaps the manager would quibble over that five-pound note. He wondered if Rose were asleep, or if she was lying awake and thinking of him. She'd laugh when he told her that he had imagined. This was a little too much. It was bad enough that the waxwork effigies of murderers should move when they weren't being watched, but it was intolerable that they should breathe. Somebody was breathing. Or was it his own breath, which sounded to him as if it came from a distance? He sat rigid, listening, and straining until he exhaled with a long sigh. His own breath, after all. Or, if not, something had divined that he was listening and had ceased breathing simultaneously. Houston jerked his head swiftly around and looked all about him out of haggard and hunted eyes. Everywhere his gaze encountered the vacant waxen faces, and everywhere he felt that by just some least fraction of a second, he had missed seeing a movement of hand or foot, a silent opening or compression of lips, a flicker of eyelids, a look of human intelligence now smoothed out. They were like naughty children in a class whispering, fidgeting, and laughing behind their teacher's back, but blandly innocent when his gaze was turned upon them. This would not do. This distinctly would not do. He must clutch at something, grip with his mind upon something which belonged essentially to the workaday world, to the daylight London streets. He was Raymond Hewson, an unsuccessful journalist, a living and breathing man, and these figures grouped around him were only dummies, so they could neither move nor whisper. What did it matter if they were supposed to be lifelike effigies of murderers? They were only made of wax and sawdust and stood there for the entertainment of morbid sightseers and orange-sucking trippers. That was better. Now what was that funny story which somebody had told him yesterday? He recalled part of it, but not all, for the gaze of Dr. Bourdais urged, challenged, and finally compelled him to turn. Hewson half-turned and then swung his chair so as to bring him face to face with the wearer of those dreadful hypnotic eyes. His own eyes were dilated, and his mouth, at first set in a grin of terror, lifted to the corners in a snarl. Then Hewson spoke and woke a hundred sinister echoes. You moved! You moved. Blast you! Blast. He cried. Yes, you, yes, did. you did! Blast, Blast you. you! I saw I you! Saw you. Then he sat quite still, staring straight before him, like a man found frozen in the Arctic snows. Dr. Bourdais' movements were leisurely. He stepped off his pedestal with the mincing care of a lady alighting from a bus. The platform stood about two feet from the ground, and above the edge of it a plush-covered rope hung in arc-like curves. Dr. Bourdais lifted up the rope until it formed an arc for him to pass under, stepped off the platform, sat down on the edge facing Hewson. Then he nodded 
and smiled and said, Good evening. I need hardly tell you, he continued in perfect English in which was traceable only the least foreign accent. Not until I overheard the conversation between you and the worthy manager of this establishment did I suspect that I should have the pleasure of a companion here for the night. You cannot move or speak without my bidding, but you can hear me perfectly well. Something tells me that you are, shall I say, nervous. My dear sir, have no illusions. I am not one of these contemptible effigies miraculously come to life. I am Dr. Bourdais himself. He paused, coughed, and shifted his legs. Uh, pardon me, he resumed, but I am a little stiff. And let me explain. Circumstances with which I need not fatigue you have made it desirable that I should live in England. I was close to this building this evening when I saw a policeman regarding me a thought too curiously. I guess he intended to follow and perhaps ask me embarrassing questions. So I mingled with the crowd and came in here. An extra coin bought my admission to the chamber in which we now meet, and an inspiration showed me a certain means of escape. I raised a cry of fire, and when all the fools had rushed to the stairs, I stripped my effigy of the caped coat which you behold me wearing, donned it, hid my effigy under the platform at the back, and took its place on the pedestal. I own that I have since spent a very fatiguing evening, but fortunately I was not always being watched and had opportunities to draw an occasional deep breath and ease the rigidity of my pose. One small boy screamed and exclaimed that he saw me moving. I understand that he was to be whipped and put straight to bed on his return home. The manager's description of me, which I had the embarrassment of being compelled to overhear, was biased but not altogether inaccurate. Clearly I am not dead, although it is as well that the world thinks otherwise. His account of my hobby, which I have indulged for years, was in the main true, although not intelligently expressed. The world is divided between collectors and non-collectors. With the non-collectors we are not concerned. The collectors collect anything according to their individual tastes, from money to cigarette cards, from moths to matchbooks. I collect throats. He paused again and regarded Hewson's throat with interest mingled with disfavor. I am obliged to the chance which brought us together tonight, he continued, and perhaps it would seem ungrateful to complain. From motives of personal safety, my activities have been somewhat curtailed of late years, and I am glad of this opportunity of gratifying my somewhat unusual whim. But you have a skinny neck, sir, if you will overlook a personal remark. I should never have selected you from choice. He fumbled in an inside pocket 
and took out something which he tested against a wet forefinger, and then proceeded to pass gently to and fro across the palm of his left hand. This is a little French razor, he remarked blandly. They are not much used in England, but perhaps you know them? One straps them on wood. The blade, you will observe, is very narrow. They do not cut very deep, but deep enough. In just one little moment, you shall see for yourself. I shall ask you the little civil question of all the polite barbers. Does the razor suit you, sir? He rose up, a diminutive but menacing figure of evil, and approached Hewson with the silent furtive step of a hunting panther. You will have the goodness, he said, to raise your chin a little. Thank you, and a little more, just a little more. Ah, thank you, merci, monsieur. Ah, merci, merci. Over one end of the chamber was a thick skylight of frosted glass, which, by day, let in a few sickly and filtered rays from the floor above. After sunrise, these began to mingle with the subdued light from the electric bulbs, and the mingled illumination added a certain ghastliness to a scene which needed no additional touch of horror. The waxwork figures stood apathetically in their places, waiting to be admired or execrated by the crowds who would presently wander fearfully among them. In their midst, Hewson sat still, leaning far back in his armchair. His chin was uptilted as if he were waiting to receive attention from a barber, and although there was not a scratch upon his throat, nor anywhere upon his body, he was cold and dead. His previous employers were wrong in having him credited with no imagination. Dr. Bourdet, on his pedestal, watched the dead man unemotionally. He did not move, nor was he capable of motion. But then, after all, he was only a waxwork. And that, as they say, is that. I love that ending, even though it feels sort of ambiguous and not at the same time. I remember reading this story when I was much younger as a kid and finding it particularly unsettling because of those hanging threads of doubt that exist at the end of the story. That will conclude our evening of frights. I hope you enjoyed all of them. As I mentioned earlier, there are links to all of our guests who joined tonight in the show notes. And in addition, there are links to many of the stories by these authors. There are also a lot of musical pieces that were used in tonight's episode that I will provide links to and acknowledgement of in the show notes. There are almost too many to mention here, but as you can hear, there are a lot of very great composers out there composing work that is really uh, evocative and, and very atmospheric. These are pieces that you can listen to outside of having them accompany a film or a story or something like that. So, so next time, we'll be back with a regular Fan of Galaxy podcast 
but look next month when we look to do a ghost stories for Christmas episode in this same vein. Until next time, this is the Phantom Galaxy.